Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir, and today I have with me uh, Harun Kuchuk. Harun is a uh, recent PhD from UC San Diego in History and Science Studies, a former instructor at Shehira University, and currently a postdoc researcher at the Max Planck Institute in Berlin, where he is um, under the working under the project Science in Circulation. This is, in a sense, an ongoing part of an ongoing series that we're trying to focus on history of science in the Ottoman Empire. You know, what is history of science? How does it look like? What can we say science is in the Ottoman Empire? And today we have, whereas previous episodes focused more general on more general topics, today we have a more in-depth look at the Enlightenment in Istanbul and in 18th century Europe. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Arun. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, why don't we start, I mean, when we say the Enlightenment, you know, what does that mean? What, it, what in the world, you know, we all have this general notion of what the Enlightenment is, but, you know, as historians, when the historians of the Enlightenment uh, say this word, what, what do they actually have in mind and what, you know, what has been written about it lately? So there wasn't much talk about the Enlightenment up until 10 years ago. Of course, there is the Enlightenment that we all know, this um, radical, atheist, egalitarian, um, democratic kind of enlightenment that we all know about. So, you know, when we say this, uh, this enlightenment of atheists and people attached to reason, like, you know, who are we speaking about? What, what were the figures? Well, the enlightenment figures were mostly the so-called French philosophers. Um, and, uh, well, who were they? Um, I guess... Dolbach would be one, Baron Dolbach. There was Condorcet, there was Diderot, um, all those people, you know, this, the crowd, yeah. You know, there, there was a sort of concentration of thinkers in the late 18th century who basically advocated some kind of atheism, some kind of democracy, some kind of egalitarian culture. And that used to be the old Enlightenment. Sorry, I mean, what were these, why did they want, why were they arguing for atheism and democracy? I mean, there were the ideas themselves, which uh, I guess, you know, have certain roots. Uh, but I think more importantly, it was basically the Europe they were living in. There were, you know, you know, wars of religion in the early 17th century, as you know. And after that, people started critiquing religion. People started critiquing monarchies. Um, perhaps the most important man sort of prior to the late 18th century was Benedict Spinoza, who sort of his theological political treatise was, I guess, tremendously, well, or potentially destructive. Um, it was tremendously critical. It had cert you know, a certain amount of influence, and we know that it was you know, read and appreciated by many, many European thinkers all the way until the late 18th century. But, you know, we don't really speak, or rather, you know, in the past, we really didn't used to speak about Spinoza as part of the Enlightenment because he was too early, right? The old version of the Enlightenment said that the Enlightenment was a late 18th century movement. That was sort of the mature Enlightenment movement. And what's the new, what's this new version? What it, in the past 10 years, what have people been saying about it? Well, in the past 10 years, um, a number of things have happened. Um, one thing that has happened is... Uh, Lots of sort of earlier figures, such as Franco Venturi, early tw earlier 20th century figures like Franco Venturi or um, Edward Winter, have been sort of picked up again, and people have sort of um, have adopted a more, I would say, flexible understanding of the Enlightenment, what the Enlightenment may mean. Uh, for example, you know, Franco Venturi has this sort of beautiful article speaking about how. The Enlightenment comes in uh, sort of both republican varieties and in sort of uh, monarchical varieties, right? So it's not, you know, for example, you know, that right there tells us that, you know, Enlightenment does not necessarily have to come with a sort of republican agenda. Um, enlightened absolutism, for example, is now part of the sort of general sort of view of the Enlightenment, right? That's one thing that you know Franco Venturi did. Eduard Winter and other people have also sort of included other places in the Enlightenment, right? Um, normally, again, in the early version, 
France is the center of the Enlightenment and sort of spreads out from there. Uh, when you look at people like Eduard Winter, you also see that you know Germany, Poland, and even Russia is sort of a part of this geography. So you know people have started reading these things, and then this sort of man, Jonathan Israel, came came up with a with a very controversial thesis. He said, you know, the Enlightenment is not a French movement; it's a movement in the Netherlands. It's a Dutch movement. Right? And he said that you know it's not a late 18th century movement, it's an early, 20, early 17th century movement that sort of um, hangs over into the 18th century. Uh, and he sort of divides the Enlightenment into the early Enlightenment and the mature Enlightenment. And that has sort of kicked off the debate once again. You know, I think not a lot of people agree with Jonathan Israel. Um, I mean, of course, you know, he's, he's produced tremendously sort of three tremendously erudite volumes. Uh, and he basically talks about everyone who's sort of worth talking about in the 18th century. Or rather, you know, every sort of even slightly canonical author of the Enlightenment gets a place in his volumes. Right, so that's how the sort of new debate started. So basically what we have is an expansion of what the Enlightenment exactly. means so chronologically, geographically, geographically. and let's say, in different political camps, we can see versions right. of the Enlightenment. Right, exactly. And um, the most recent trend is to basically look at the Enlightenment as a Europe-wide movement, not just a French movement or not just like a Dutch movement or a, I don't know, a British movement, right? So the general idea is, you know, there, is, there was this one movement that had sort of different, um, I would say, you know, well, satellites or different sort of parts in different nations and in different places. So that's sort of the general idea of the, well, I guess the general, that's the general lay of the land today. Okay, I have two questions. Right. One is, was the Enlightenment the same in each of these places? So when we look at the Enlightenment in Poland, uh, there are also, uh, you know, arguments towards atheism, towards, do you find the same phenomenon? And I guess the second question is, you know, do people spread this out even further, start looking at the Enlightenment in the colonies? in the right. Americas and places like this? Right. Well, no, the Enlightenment was not the same everywhere. Um, for example, it was one thing in Prussia, right? Um, you know about you know, Kant's, you know, what is Enlightenment? You know about Frederick the Great. Um, there, for example, the model was more or less enlightened despotism. Whereas, you know, if you look at the Netherlands, which was, you know, one of the, well, I guess it was the only republic back then, um, well, in the Netherlands, it takes on a more sort of republican tone. Um, in the well, in certain places, it's anti-clerical, like in France. Um, in other places, it's um, well. In England, for example, you have people who are at peace with revealed religion, but you also have people who are not at peace with re- revealed religion. Uh, you have people in Naples who are sort of speaking about the same issues. You have people up in Scotland speaking about the same issues, but it's, you know, it's not the same in any two places. To use, I guess, you know, Wittgenstein's impre- sort of expression, there are these sort of clusters of ideas that have family resemblance to one another, and that's what the New Enlightenment is. It's a Europe, Europe-wide movement with, uh, well, some, you know, it's got a certain direction, right? It's, um, for example, it's about the public sphere, it's about... Um, keeping monarchy in check, it's about uh, the use of reason, it's about, well, um, a new place, it's, it's, sort of, it's about attributing a new role to revealed religion, right? There are all these sort of different movements. And of course, you know, the Enlightenment world is not just, you know, these movements, but also sort of counter-movements, right? Uh, the very same set of ideas also gives you pietism, right? Um, so it's not just about sort of no religion, for some people, it's, well, quite about religion. It's about sort of religious reform. It's Sometimes it's about, well, abandoning reason or the use of reason or the use of sort of theological apparatus in our appreciation of religion. So it's got a whole bunch of things. So it's I, go, I would say it's a general sort of 17th, 18th century state of things. I mean, does this spread even, can we spread it out even further, like to the colonies, uh, to the Americas? Um, yes, of course, you know, the Americas is, I would say, it's a well-known destination for the Enlightenment. Um, 
I don't know about other places, though. I mean, I don't know about what's happening in India or in China. Um, we know that, you know, the Spanish world was a part of this movement, although, you know, it's sort of like a late, uh, late bloomer. Um, along with this sort of the Spanish world, of course, I'm also talking about sort of Latin America, so on and so forth. I mean, now that, you know, we have this general notion, general understanding of maybe what the Enlightenment is and its kind of broader implications, can we even say, I mean, how does it relate to the Ottoman Empire? Like, was there an Enlightenment in the Ottoman lands? Well, I obviously think there was. Uh, <laughs> when I'm saying that there is, there was an Enlightenment in the Ottoman Empire, I'm using a very sort of um, new window of opportunity, right? This is this is the right time to include the Ottoman Empire because we know that in many ways the Ottoman Empire was a part of Europe. And this was, I thought, the right time to ask the question whether the Ottoman Empire was also a part of this sort of... The Ottoman Empire was also a part of this Enlightenment movement. And I think it was. I think it was. Um, and uh, there are a number of reasons for this. Of course, you know, the Ottoman Empire was very cosmopolitan at this point in the 17th, late 17th, early 18th centuries. Um, another factor that's also very important is sort of this proliferation of adult converts with the sort of abandonment of Dev Shirme. So people don't convert at you know when they were children anymore. But you have lots of sort of grown men who turn to Islam, who have, you know, some of whom have received university educations in Europe, right? So you have sort of these actors whose true identities are often obscured by the fact that they have converted. Then you have sort of um, the Greeks who are sort of coming in from Venice. That's another factor. And then you also have these sort of indigenous actors, the bureaucrats and the physicians being the sort of the most important two groups. And these two groups, I would say, create a new intellectual environment, especially in Istanbul and... Um, and that would be sort of the general sort of condition that I'm looking at. And I would say there was something that looks quite like the Enlightenment there because there are several values that we associate with the Enlightenment that these people shared. And the, those two values were sort of this sort of common good or public good, right? That is at the forefront of much of intellectual debate in the late 17th, early 18th centuries. Um, you have a push towards sort of greater tolerance. Uh, you have um, sort of a public space, especially after Ahmed III, you have more of a public space than ever. Um, you also have sort of science discussions or philosophy discussions outside the medrasa in these, you know, what you can call sort of these um, semi-closed spaces, the majlis or, you know, sort of even in maj even between majlises or um, at libraries. Um, so you have sort of a new sort of culture of debate as it were a new sort of culture of rethinking things i think this brings up you know there's a lot of questions here uh i guess kind of the first question you know is this when we speak of like an enlightenment in Istanbul? i mean one is it you know enlightenment in Istanbul? is an enlightenment throughout different provinces of the empire uh for you second i mean are we thinking of something as you know, connected to Europe? I mean, is it like people coming from Europe and kind of bringing these notions, or is this just something that's simultaneously happening in Istanbul uh, and other parts of the empire as well? Well, thank you. Um, I guess, you know, to the first question, I would say, you know, it's um, Istanbul as well as other major port cities and probably um, sort of the newly conquered Venetian territories as well. I mean, as far as the reach of this movement is concerned, I don't really know how, how deep these things penetrated. I mean, since we are talking about the bureaucrats, it's quite possible that, you know, when they were assigned to sort of different places as governors, they probably carried this culture with them. But then again, you know, because we're talking about sort of imperial physicians who, well, who basically worked at the imperial hospitals in Istanbul, Edirne, and Bursa, and since we are talking about, well, more or less um, palace or, you know, grand vizierial um, bureaucrats, I mean, we are talking more or less about Istanbul. And it always seemed to me like um, sort of the, the southeastern part of the empire, as well as Egypt, they were sort of different parts because they are sort of Arabic-speaking places, whereas, um, well, Istanbul is a Turkish-speaking city. So wait, how does that 
change things? I mean, why couldn't they also uh, engage with this? I mean, with these ideas? Uh, well, I guess they could, um, and uh, we know for a fact that some of the writings, if you know, the, the writings in Arabic had much better sort of circulation than the writings in Turkish. Of course, you know, we don't know how far the printing press books went, right? We we know that you know, lots of people, or you know, at least a fair number of people by the standards of that age had access to the printing press books, uh, but I don't know how well they they circulated in the provinces. It's, you know, it seems to me like uh, Istanbul and its sort of periphery is uh, is where things are happening. Um, well, as for European actors, sure, there were you know European travelers who sort of took part in these discussions, who were sort of uh, part of the sort of the po- polite salon life in Istanbul. Uh, we know that as well, but I wouldn't say that it was a movement imported over from Europe. I would say you know the sort of European ideas served as resources uh, within a sort of broader social dynamic that was sort of internal to Europe. Internal to, excuse me, internal to the Ottoman Empire. So, you know, one thing that's happening is, uh, well, the bureaucrats are rising, right? This is what everybody knows and everybody speaks about when they are talking about the late 17th, early 18th centuries. Uh, One thing that we don't talk about, however, is, you know, well, the intellectual lives of these bureaucrats, because, uh, I mean... Wait, so... Who are these bureaucrats? I mean, so far, just to kind of summarize, I mean, you've given us kind of four groups of people, right? Three or four groups of people that have been involved in in what you call this kind of this enlightenment in Istanbul. You know, one of them is uh, Greeks, right. uh, you know, basic Greek intellectuals. Right. Another is uh, bureaucrats. Another is physicians. Physicians. A th- fourth is like converts. Right. Uh, coming from Europe. So, I mean, can you give it, let's, I mean, can we kind of go through these groups? I mean, so let's, if we start with the bureaucrats, who are we talking about? What did they do? What were they interested Um, in? Well, we are talking about, I guess, um, you know, the people that I looked at uh, were people who eventually ended up sort of as hajegan, right? So these are sort of top-level bureaucrats who are destined for, well, higher office. Um, And who are we talking about? I looked at, you know, people like... um, 28 Mehmet Çelebi is one of these people. Mehmet Said Efendi is... And just to remind people, 28 Mehmet Çelebi is the, the ambassador right, who the, went to right, France. The Ottoman em- ambassador to France. That's, that's and correct. And left a travelogue. Of it, right? right, he left a travelogue and he also left a physics book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one person that I look at. Another person that I look at is his son, Mehmet Said Efendi, who was, um, who was also a diplomat, right, who also sort of uh, went to... Friends, um, so there, that's one person. But of course, you know, I'm including other people like uh, Rodos Izade, Mehmet Efendi, or Hezarfen uh, Hussein Chelebi. Right? These people are sort of the general group of people that I'm looking at. Um, uh, people who are sort of already visible, right? As sort of these sort of Chelebi types, uh, but you know, who haven't been sort of looked into in much detail. Until this point, so I mean, I mean, what is a Chelebi, though? Just for our listeners, uh, what is I mean, a how Chelebi? would you how would you describe it? I mean, we know. I would say you know the Chelebi is the the Ottoman e- equivalent of sort of Esquire, right? Some uh, not terribly descriptive title that, uh, well, or men of letters, something like that. You know, these. I don't. I don't know how else to sort of put it. Some of these people end up as katip. I mean, these are basically... It's difficult to describe. These are basically like uh, people engaged in learning, but also employed in some capacity as sort of um, state officials. These are the general sort of state officials or, I don't know, like uh, officials of sort of um, grandee households, things of this sort. That's what I have in mind. Or that's what I think, you know, that the Chelebi type is. And why is it, I mean, why did these people come up? I mean, why at this point in time did these people become more major figures? Do you know? I don't really know. Uh, I can't, you know, give you a full answer. But I would say, you know, it seems to have something to do with with the general sort of Ottoman dynamics, namely the the rise of the households. Um, Of course, you know, the, the situation gets even more grave when 
and Derun is shut down when Mehmed the Fourth, you know, carries the uh, carries the court to Edirne, and uh, and we're told from then on, generally, you know, most bureaucratic corps are educated at the households, right? So, with the sort of the demise of the Enderun, right? You have a new dynamics at play, right? Nobody sort of gets trained as a as a scribe or as a bureaucrat from childhood onwards at the palace. These people get trained elsewhere. They get trained in households. Some of them even get like piecemeal medrese education. Some of them get full medrese education, but are not, you know, officially employed as ulema. So you have this sort of new variety of... Um, I guess new a new variety of sort of scribal education, and one of the reasons why I think these people are so sort of prominent is because because of these reasons, right? They come from all kinds of different backgrounds. They are uh, some of them are tremendously well educated. Um, most of them know a few languages. Most of them know a European language either because. Um, they have some kind of diplomatic engagement with Europe or because they are sort of brought up in places where a, multi, you know, a multitude of languages were spoken. Some of them are converts or sort of second generation converts. So these are sort of the dynamics at play. And so when we say like European languages, which Latin or uh, French or I mean, how I mean, how would you? pick up Latin in Istanbul in the late 17th century? <laughs> um, with great difficulty, I would imagine, because um, as you probably know, there was not even a sort of grammar book to take you between a European language and Turkish. Um, you would basically have to grow up um, knowing that language, or you would probably um, learn it from a tutor, who somebody who already knew Turkish and would be sort of willing to teach you Latin. Um but Latin would be the language to know, um, as opposed to, for example, Italian. I would say, you know, Italian it would be the language to know sort of earlier in the 17th century. Late 17th, early 18th century, um, Latin is sort of, I would say, more popular. French, um, that's difficult to estimate because uh, as far as I know, they didn't really translate anything from the French language. Um, they worked mostly between your know, Turkish and Latin. Wait, so why did Latin become more popular? I mean, in this period when I assume that, you know, European languages are becoming more and more vernacularized, right. more people are writing in. Right. No, that's that's absolutely correct. I, I think that has something to do with the origins of language acquisition. I mean, the universities are still operating in Latin at this point, so you know, that's one one obvious destination. Um Latin gives you sort of greater reach both in diplomacy and in sort of reading stuff, right? You can still read more stuff in Latin than you can in French or English or German. It's just... And, you know, if you were sort of an adult learner of Latin, it would simply be sort of a more economic deci economical decision, right? It, it would be sort of better to learn Latin than to learn sort of three or four European languages if you wanted to access books. Okay, so, you know, we've spoken a bit about kind of uh, the bureaucrats, the this new Chelebi class that kind of comes up. I mean, what about... I'm um, presuming most of these new bureaucrats are Muslim, but at the same time, we still have, uh, we have uh, kind of this new group of people, uh, Greeks and so forth, that are also going over to Italy, uh, especially Padua, and getting an ed education there. Like, so who, I mean, are they involved in this enlightenment um, framework that you're proposing? Uh, if so, you know, what are they bringing over? Where are they studying? Right. Um. Well, the Greeks are definitely a part of this movement, um, and um, that has a lot to do with their sort of standing in Venice up until the conquest of Crete in 1669, and later on sort of the reconquest of much of mainland Greece in 1718, right? Um, most sort of, I would say, the great, the largest uh, Greek diaspora was in Venice and its, its sort of, and its colonies. Right, so that's where you know, lots of Greeks lived, and as sort of Venetian subjects, they went to study at the University of Padua. Wait, so these weren't the majority of the Greek population lived in the Venetian colonies, and not Greek-speaking population lived in Venetian colonies, and not like say in Anatolia or. Uh, I mean, like a diaspora 
maybe. Or, you know, yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, it's lots of Greek people. Let's say lots of Greek people lived under Venetian rule. That sounds uh, that sounds more correct. Um, so, you know, these people, they, they inhabited, well, lots of different cultures at once. You know, they had their sort of native Greek culture, wherever they were living, um, maybe one of the islands, maybe mainland Greece. Um, well, under Venice, they also had to cope with sort of like a Catholic culture of sorts. And then under the Ottomans, they had to cope with like a Muslim culture of sorts. But, you know, regardless, many, many of them, well, went to study at the University of Padua. The alternatives would have been, you know, sort of generally speaking about sort of dynamics of Greek education. Um, they could also study at the sort of the St. Athanasius College in Rome, or they could study at the University of Bologna, which is a papal university. And Venice was, I would say, the most sort of liberal of these three. So we mentioned Rome, Padua, and Bologna. Bologna, right. So Padua gets grouped with Venice. Yeah, Padua okay. gets grouped with Venice. And, um, well, Rome and Bologna take uh, students both from Venetian colonies, but they also take uh, students from the Ottoman Empire. But, you know, Padua gets grouped with Venice, and um, Padua has, uh, has an interesting feature. Of course, you know, the education that you get at St. Athanasius in Rome, which is a sort of a school established to train Greek clergy, right? That's its purpose. And at the University of Bologna, which is a papal university, things are far more old school, right? These, uh, you get um, quite a bit of church indoctrination at these places. Uh, whereas if you go to Padua, you get a, you know, for the lack of a better word, you get a sort of a more secular education because, uh, well, there is not much theology to study at Padua. Um, unless, of course, you know, you are going to the competing Jesuit college, right? There's a competing Jesuit college in, in Padua as well, or in, or in Venice. Um, but the education that you get in Padua is generally either in law or in medicine. And Padua is, to pl is the place to go study medicine, I would say, up until the 1680s, 1690s. It's got the best faculty. Um, and philosophically speaking, it's, um, well, it's not sort of, it's not, it's not a sort of a very radical, very atheist place, but judging by the standards of other universities, it's pre, you know fairly radical uh, because you get like an orthodox Aristotelianism, right? That's that's that seems to be the core of Padua education up until 1708, 1710, or maybe even later. So, what is an or just to make things clear? What is an orthodox Aristotelianism? In the it's, late 17th um, century. What does that entail? Well, what does it entail? It entails a number of things. Uh, first of all, it's um, very focused on sort of Aristotelian methodology, right? So um, the sort of um, logic is quite important. Physics is quite important. Uh, metaphysics is not a part of the education that you get at Padua, at least, you know, not from the sort of the middle of the 17th century onwards because... Uh, well, theologians don't like it when philosophers speak about metaphysics because they sort of, I don't know, like uh, they become the sort of the purveyors of a more deterministic uh, view of the world. So metaphysics is not a part of this sort of Aristotelian worldview, this sort of orthodox Aristotelian worldview. Physics is, logic is, and that's more or less it. And this Orthodox Aristotelianism, if you had to put another name on it, it would be Averroism, but it's a sort of uh, highly mutated Averroism. And as you know, you might know, um, Averroism was sort of best received or sort of most uh, welcome at the University of Padua from the late Middle Ages onwards. So you know, Padua has a long-standing tradition of Averroism which is different from, for example, other alternatives that you get, sort of these other scholastic alternatives that you get around Europe. So Padua has this special place. It's got a particular type of um, education. It's uh, much more physical. It's much more sort of deterministic. Um, it's much more focused on methodology rather than on doctrine. So it's a different kind of place. And um, when you go to study there, I mean, if you are a very good student at Padua, the, of course, you, know, you end up being a, sort of a, a physician. Right, uh, who has well great sympathy towards Aristotle and and his works, and uh, that's you know that's where many of the Greeks go get their education. Okay, so let's say you're a Greek from Salonika, you go to Padua for your education, you finish your degree, you're a physician now. What do you do? Do you stay in Italy? Do you come back? 
lots of them actually, you know, lots of them end up staying in Italy. Um, it's largely um, tied to your prospects for, you know, employment. Uh, of course, you know, physicians are, well, useful everywhere. But I get the impression that they were sort of particularly, um, I guess, well-received in the Ottoman Empire. Lots of, you know, Greek physicians in the Ottoman Empire. From the late, I would say, again, late 17th century onwards, because up until the late 17th century, I would say, you know, medicine in the Ottoman Empire is primarily a Jewish occupation. Or, you know, that's at least, you know, where the most prestigious physicians come from, most prestigious sort of court physicians come from. Uh, from then on, it's sort of more of a Greek affair. You know, sort of Padua-trained Greeks sort of take over the role of the sort of the Jewish physicians at the court. Why is that? I, I don't really know about sort of the structural factors, um, but I could say this much. Uh, you have a lot more Greek presence in general after the conquest of Crete. Uh, for example, uh, Panayot Nikusios, the, the grand dragoman, Right, that's I think that's sort of the first Greek dragoman. Um, of course, Mehmed the Fourth's wife is Greek. Uh, that's Ahmed the Third's father, mother, mother as well, right? So that's like you have this general Greek connection. Uh, Nuh Efendi, who's sort of the the chief physician to Ahmed the Third, he is also Cretan, and he was I think um, he's sort of at about the same age as the as the Sultana. So you have sort of these. I guess, you know, more sort of accidental uh, features. But, you know, other than that, of course, you know, there's the fact that the Köprülüs are sort of are from Albania, right? And that's also a region where you have sort of some Greek presence. That could be one of the sort of the more structural factors. So when these Greeks are coming over, serving in the palace, I mean, are they converting to Islam? Are they not? Are they, uh, I mean, how is it working exactly? And it, when, when once they come over... If the, the, for those that come back to Istanbul to other places, I mean, what are they bringing with them? I mean, how is this influencing or contributing to the intellectual culture of kind of early 18th century Istanbul? Well, I mean, one thing that they are bringing is a a new type of training that again emphasizes method over doctrine, right? So it's a, um, I mean, one thing that the Paduan education does is you know it. It's not about doing what, I don't know, it's not about saying what Galen said. It's not about saying what Aristotle said. It's about doing what Galen did or doing what Aristotle did. So there is this culture. It's, you know, this sort of switch, right? This switch from scholasticism, which is sort of saying what the ancient authorities said to the sort of the humanistic outlook, which is doing what the ancient authorities did, is sort of, it's something that you would learn quite well at Padua. So what they bring the, with them is this culture of medical humanism, right? That's that's I think that's that's the name for it. So that's one thing that comes along from Europe. Um, sort of experience becomes much much more important in in medicine rather than you know sort of repeating old sort of recipes. It's about sort of discovering, experiencing, experimenting with new recipes. Um, that's one thing that's happening. Um, of course, you know, because they are exposed to sort of the general European intellectual life in this period, they would also be bringing along Paracelsian or chemical medicine. And this is, of course, you know, the greatest sort of break from the old medicine. Um, sort of this mid-16th century figure, uh, Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim, also known as Paracelsus, well, he advocated a new kind of medicine. He said, you know, let's not just use herbs. Let's not just use organic materials. Let's also focus on inorganic materials. Let's also focus on new methods such as distillation when we are making our sort of new medicine. So that's another thing that happened. And that also, I would say, came along with the sort of general influx of European medical lore into the Ottoman Empire. And of course, you know, I should also say that, you know, Looking at Europe from the outside in the 17th century, that's, you know, this sort of Paracelsian medicine is one, one of the chief achievements of European science in this era. Because all other things that you might associate with sort of European achievements, such as the printing press, paper, um, you know, sort of ocean sailing technology, such as the compass, of course, they all go back to China, right? And... Um, if you were to talk about sort of hard European achievements at this point, I would say hard European achievements of sort of 
um, sort of revolutionary status, as it were, you would only get more or less Paracelsianism at this point. So I think this brings up a few interesting questions. I mean, just to go back, you know, we keep saying like they brought a different method. But I mean, what didn't people before, you know, experiment? I mean, weren't people constantly treating, treating diseases, trying out different things? I mean, I'm assuming that they weren't just doing the same thing that they had been doing since Galen. I mean, even just looking at the manuscripts, it's clear that, you know, there were many new books about different herbs, different transfer, different ways of using those. Uh, and I'm talking about kind of Ottoman uh, physician and medical traditions. I mean, so how is it? Is it really that different that, you know, this new methodology that they're bringing in? It's it's not tremendously different, but I would say, you know, it's an ethos. Um, I mean, I guess one thing that sort of um, has to do with sort of valorizing experience is to uh, attribute it to it sort of um, an ilim grade, right? Sort of a science grade sort of um, prestige. Um, previously, Ottoman medicine is sort of a fen sherif, right? It's like an honorable art. Um, but it's not a uh, ilmi nazari for the most part, right? It's not a sort of a theoret. It's not a field that can produce theoretical knowledge about nature in general. Okay, so how can it produce? I mean, what does it mean to produce theoretical nature knowledge about nature? Well, producing theoretical knowledge about nature is um, well saying well things about, I guess, first principles of sorts, sort of very general things such as uh, the creation of life, um, or um, how um, well human anatomy, right? The way you would approach human anatomy. Of course, you know, anatomy is not a part of medicine as such up until this point is sort of like a separate field um it means you know speaking about anatomy it also you know is about speak you know it's also speaking about things like um how um astrology affects our bodies which again you know astrology as far as i know was not a part of ottoman sort of medical lore for a very long time you could make do without astrology but you know, from the late 17th century onwards, astrology plays an sort of increasingly prominent role in the practice of medicine. But of course, you know, you work on the earlier stuff, so you may object. Now that we've, you know, kind of explored the role of medicine, of the role of Greeks studying Padua, um, of physicians coming over, I mean, who are these, the kind of the last group of people you talked about, which are the converts, uh, the adult converts coming over? Uh, often from European countries and basically working at the court. I mean, what was their contribution? First of all, you know, I guess I wouldn't really, you know, sort of separate out the converts because, um, I mean, a Greek physician could also be a convert, as was the sort of case with Nuh Efendi. But, you know, there were these travelers, right? They were these travelers um, who came to the Ottoman Empire and somehow sort of made it their home. And this was, again, you know, something that we know was quite popular, right? If you were sort of running away from Louis XIV or Louis XV, whoever, you would come to Istanbul. You would either become a Muslim and stay in Istanbul, or you could, well, go over to, I don't know, like the, the Dutch embassy or some other embassy and convert to their religion and then become one of their subjects. So, you know, Istanbul was sort of this um, I would say, generally speaking, it was a hub of conversion, right? One of the many hubs of conversion that you have in Europe. Um, so that's definitely, you know, lots of sort of circulation. Why did why did they have to convert? I mean, why couldn't they just uh, become, you know, attached to the court, not as uh, converts, but as kind of independent contractors of sorts? Or, you know, just come and live in Istanbul? Right, well, there were those two. Um, there is, you know, this one interesting figure that I look at, Johann Friedrich Bachström, uh, who stayed in Istanbul for three or four years, attached to the court, but he never converted as far as we know. But, you know, he could have converted and, you know, sort of fled the city and used his sort of, never did anything maybe with his sort of convert name, so we don't know about, uh, we don't know whether he converted or not. But, you know, he, when he appeared in Istanbul in 1728, he was a pietist missionary. He was from Halle, right? And he had been sent actually to speak to sort of high officials from the Greek church, right? From the Orthodox church. 
and um, he actually had an audience, but then I, I think he had his first audience with one of the Mavra Cordatos, the fa- well, no, it couldn't be the father's, one of the son Mavra Cordatos. Who are the Mavra Cordatos? Who are the Mavra Cordatos? Mavra Cordatos is like a, um, it's a very sort of important Fenariot Greek family, you know, Greeks of Fener. Um, Alexander Mavra Cordato was uh, the grand dragoman to the sultan uh, for many years. Um, I think he was there from 1673 until his death in 1710 or so. So like you know, 30, 40 years at, um, at Ottoman service. Um, so, you know, Alexander Mavra Cordato was sort of uh, very close to the court. He was also very influential in church politics. Uh, he was also a graduate of Padua. I mean, lots of things. He used to be a professor at the uh, at the pa- Patriarchal Academy in Istanbul before he became Dragoman. So, you know, there is him, and then there are, of course, his sons, uh, who also go on to become Dragomans, and then later as uh, they become voivodes um, of the Danubian principalities. So I think Johann Friedrich Backstrom, when he came to Istanbul in 1728, 1729, uh, he first is an, had an audience with one of the San Mavra Cordatos who directed him to the court. And um, this figure had this very sort of interesting credentials. Um, Bachstrom claimed that he was actually the son of, uh, well, he was, he, he actually claimed that he came from the Köprü line of viziers. He said that, you know, his his mother was you know, actually, you know, from the Köprü fa- family, that she had been sort of, um, captured during the failed siege of Vienna in 1683, that he grew up in an orphanage in Halle, right? So he came and he, we know that, you know, he did quite a lot of work on the printing press. But, you know, another thing that he did was he actually, I think, took part in the sort of the intellectual life of the palace. Um, and one of the results of his sort of engagement is um, this sort of you know, not very famous work from the from the printing fr- press called you know, fusati magnetici or magnetic effluvia. Um, he actually was the person to bring along this book, and he, I think, he actually took part in this translation as well because it's a, it's a very sort of weird translation. The, <laughs> I mean, the language is very strange. Uh, so you know, that's I guess you know one or important specimen that uh, that we need to look at. Of course, you know there are other sort of resident types in Istanbul. Uh, who don't convert, but who sort of work with the court in some capacity. Um, Jean-Baptiste Holderman, who wrote the sort of the Turkish grammar and get, got it published in Istanbul, he's one of these figures, right? And um, I believe, you know, with some speculation, but not too much, that he was also influential in introducing sort of Cartesian thought to Ottoman readers. Although, you know, of course, you know, the Ottomans had many, many other sources to get these new ideas from, but I think he was sort of a trusted figure, and um, and I think he had a he had a way with the court, so you know he's probably you know one of those figures who brought in a new sort of set of ideas to the Ottoman Empire. Of course, you know there is the famous Ibrahim Muteferika, an adult convert, uh, whose conversion and whose sort of religious views continue to fascinate people. Uh, but you know he's also I think a very interesting figure. Um, I also think that he was a well, he was a very avid reader of Francis Bacon. That's the impression that I get. But, you know, he's also fairly important because he's um, uh, he puts forward the intellectual case for a new printing press, right? That's, you know, one thing that Ibrahim Muteferika does. Uh, well, other than that, you know, nothing comes to my mind right now. So <laughs> you'll have no, to I make do with this much. <laughs> I think these are all great examples. I think we've kind of sketched out this broad pattern of engagement and circulation of people and ideas between, let's say, Istanbul and Italy, in uh, German parts of Germany, and France, and right. France. I guess there's kind of two questions here. Like, you know, why call this an enlightenment? I mean, to go back to kind of the discussions we began with, you know, we we're talking about, you know, some of the values and some of the ideas that kind of permeated enlightenment thought throughout Europe. Different notions of you know, use of reason, whether or, you know, purposeful lack of reason. So going towards, you know, atheism or pietism, what else did we talk about? Uh, notions of um, like republicanism or 
right let's say the use of reason republicanism a greater emphasis on like the let's say courtly patronage of science i don't know if that's no that's i would say that's pretty old news like okay, courtly right. patronage of science but i would say maj- the majalis is a is a fairly new development the the fact that you know science becomes the centerpiece or science and philosophy become the centerpiece of polite conversation i think that's a new development um and we see that i would say quite a lot you know throughout the 18th century i would say ahmedian youths they all you know go on to become uh, statesmen with sort of philosophical credentials right hekimolu ali pasha who's sort of also well known as the bastard son of ahmed the third you know he is one specimen Kojaragu Pasha is another specimen. Mehmet Said Efendi, of course, another sort of Ahmedian youth. He's another specimen. You have these sort of Ahmedian figures who um, have a philosophical outlook in general, sort of these sort of philosopher statesmen. But why call this the Enlightenment? Well, I mean, the on that front, I guess there are a few things to discuss. One thing to s- discuss is this, you know, there is this spurious hadith that sort of pops up in the late 17th century. Right, science it is to the first comes the medicine of the body, second comes the law of religions, other ver- variants include you know sciences of the body, sciences of religions, right? This becomes very frequently cited by Ottoman physicians. Um and of course it's um, it's a pirate flag, right? That's what it is. Uh because it says, look, you know, there are we are also part of the ulema, right? That's one thing that one thing to consider about the physicians. Physicians were part of the sort of the ulema apparatus, and they also got sort of paid like ulema, right? They had sort of land assigned to them, um, and they had the sort of same ranks as the ulema. Um, but that's to you know that basically you know what that super, uh, superior hadith says is, um, well, there are two types of ulema. The physicians are the better ulema, and the sort of the fukaha or the regular ulema are the worse ulema. They are the sort of less useful kind. Right, so that's definitely a pirate flag, right? And that's a very enlightenment type of pirate flag to say that you know, sort of, this useful physical science is better than this religious law, right? That's a. I would say that if if there was a smoking gun, this would be a smoking gun. So that's one thing that we encounter, right? There is a sort of um, a sort of radical vein in the Ottoman physicians. Uh, another thing that happens is, of course, you know, this eventually evolves into some kind of materialism as embodied in this very strange man called Abbas Vesim, who basically reads everything that's written in the early 18th century. And then towards the mid-18th century, he comes out and says, there is no such thing as the soul. The soul is a material thing. And this material, we know that this is a material thing because if you cut a worm in two, both parts continue to move and live, right? That's sort of the anecdotal evidence. But of course, you know, in the process, he cites um, figures that we didn't even know the Ottomans knew about. So, for example, he he cites Robert Boyle. I mean, then you wonder to yourself, you know, when did they learn about this character, Robert Boyle? And then, you know, it becomes sort of... Um, Increasingly clear that they had a you know fairly sort of deep engagement with all this literature. Um, Abbas Vesim also sort of completely denies Aristotelianism, right? That's another thing that happened. So, but this is of course you know not a new, new development. This is like an Ahmedian development, sort of general rejection of Aristotelianism. I would say that's like a generational difference. I guess um, that's I guess one thing that I should talk about. I would say from the late 17th century up until. Um, 1720s or so palace intellectuals are going through an aristotelian period that is you know they are abandoning neoplatonism just uh i mean i think when we say these terms neoplatonism aristotelianism they tend to confuse people so like what what does it mean to be a neoplatonist what does it mean to be an aristotelian um or neo-aristotelian okay well neoplatonist would mean i guess in this context it's first of all to follow some variety of Avicenna's philosophy. I would say that's sort of the key indicator. Uh, But it's also a certain sort of cosmological understanding, namely um, seeing the world as an, I would say, an emanation of God, right? That's, again, one of the key tenets of of Neoplatonism. 
another thing that happens is of course you know um, you have an accompanying metaphysics right in at all times you are subject to sort of god's wishes or god's actions right this is again very sort of important part of muslim neoplatonism so people abandon these things they rather adopt a sort of a more physical understanding of the universe for example in neoplatonism the planets are sort of celestial intellects right they are sort of in they are angelic creatures from this point onwards stars are no longer angelic creatures they are rather um, a source of physical influence on the way things work on the earth yeah um so that's one thing that's happening a second thing that's happening is of course um sort of figures who are earlier than avicenna are also becoming the subject of interest people are starting to collect books uh people are sort of picking an interest in people like you know el farabi you know el farabi is also a neoplatonist but again you know he would be like a ooh you know new character kind of he would be uh, an exciting uh new type uh they are, they get interested in the biographies of sort of pre avicenna philosophers that's another thing that's happening right and you know generally speaking they adopt a more deterministic outlook you know if an earthquake happens and it happens quite a lot in istanbul as you well no you no longer say you know this is well what god did you no longer say you know this is a punishment for something this is retribution for something or this is a sign for something uh you basically say if you live in 18th century istanbul this is a physical event that was caused by sort of certain underground movements uh it was sort of built up steam or sort of moisture from you know below the ground which just you know bursts forth something like that right so there is a i would say more physical more materialistic understanding that is sort of already happening and uh, this is i would say this is what the generation that's already old and mature in the early 18th century thinks in the later 18th century you no longer have aristotelians you have people who follow different kinds of ideas you have people who are sort of interested in experimentalism you have people interested in sort of cartesianism right um alchemy and the sort of uh this kind of paracelsianism picks up at an unprecedented pace you know although it's forbidden un- under ahmed the 3 um it picks up at an unprecedented pace under ahmed's rule i would say you know the sort of most important paracelsian of the ottoman empire umar shifaide de he is also an ahmedian figure who's sort of very sort of clear about his commitments he says let's abandon the old stuff let's look at the new stuff So those are the kinds of things that are happening there's sort of a general abandoning of old doctrines um there's a propensity to think more naturalistically or more materialistically about um well what is happening around them so what's happening in Istanbul and right there's a greater emphasis on reason if you um include the the printing press project as well i would say that's a fairly uh republican project in its own right because it's um, it invites um the non elite to participate in a in the intellectual life of the empire that's the entire goal of the printing press so i would say you know that's that's a fairly sort of suggestive package i mean there's also kind of a question like do we have any examples of people from europe coming over in the 18th century familiar with the events occurring in in 18th century Europe and being able to recognize this quote unquote enlight- enlightenment in Istanbul do we have any examples of that in a sense you know the external category of the enlightenment being compared to the internal category of like an Istanbul enlightenment as far as visitors are concerned uh, in the early 18th century seer something or another i think this is uh, i'm talking about one of the physicians of louis the 14th i don't recall his name though He came to Istanbul and he said, "Look, you know, when I think about intellectual life here, I feel like Istanbul is quite like Paris and I feel like Bursa is quite like Leiden." So, you know, that's one thing that you have. Um there is of course um, other things like, you know, outside observers. Um so Christoph August Hoyman, um he writes a piece about Istanbul in he writes this in about 1728 and he speaks about sort of this new dawn of learning in the city right so that's another thing um and of course you know 
my favorite sort of spectator of the Ottoman Empire, Johann Christian Kundmann, who also was friends with this character, Johann Friedrich Bachstrom, um, he speaks very flatteringly of the Ottoman Empire and he just, you know, portrays a, I would say, almost sort of um, too erudite a court. I mean, he, I mean, some of his stuff is impossible to verify. I mean, for me at this point, you know, because I haven't seen the stuff in Topkapı. But, for example, he says that Damat Ibrahim Pasha was both interested in and capable of reading Roman historians. Right, so this is sort of one of his claims. He also claims that uh, Damat Ibrahim Pasha was interested in mathematics, which we know is true. And Damat Ibrahim is fairly sort of he's a fairly strange character because um, I mean one thing that he's just to be he Damat Ibrahim Pasha is the vizier under Ahmed. Right, he's the he's the grand vizier of Ahmed the third from 1718 onwards. And um, I mean one thing that he does is he asks whether you know you know they are now discussing sort of. um, the magnetism of of the earth so on and so forth and he asks whether there was there is a magnetic equivalent or sort of somewhere else that could be a kabe um he well he's generally sort of interested in these sort of more sort of curious strange stuff um and we know that you know he's interested in mathematics because there are lots of short treatises translated from arabic and persian into turkish that he sort of that were dedicated to him so you know that's i mean sort of kundman gives you uh, a plausible, you know, mixture of some of the stuff that we know to be true and some stuff that we don't, we are not so sure about. So I get the sense that, you know, um, if Kundman is right, I mean, definitely we are talking about a very lively intellectual environment at the court, which you know strikes true looking at you know all the sort of the writings that ha- that have survived from that era. And of course, there's you know people like Lady Mary Montagu, who while traveling, you know, comes across, you know, some of her hosts she claims are. Some of her hosts, she claims, are deists and that they, you know, basically, you know, externally worship, but they basically are, don't even believe in, barely believe in a god and so forth like this. And Right. Well, I mean, there's not only Montague, um, Paul Ryko, about, you know, 50, 60 years before Lady Montague, um, says the Ottomans are not only deists, they seem to be atheists. Um, and then a rough contemporary of Lady Montague is uh, Francis Dadich, uh, or Dadichius, I guess, depending on how you pronounce, how you prefer to pronounce his name, who says that, you know, it's, um, it's fairly popular, especially among the ulema. Deism is fairly popular, especially among the ulema. And, um, I mean, I don't know sort of what to make of it. I guess, you know, one thing, of course, is that, you know, Islam by this point doesn't have the kind of doctrinal backbone that Christianity does, right? Because uh, most sort of brands of Christianity that you find in Europe at this point are sort of heavily armed and armored for doctrinal battle with sort of competing church movements. And uh, as far as I know, Islam doesn't have this kind of same sort of all-encompassing sort of tremendously detailed theological apparatus that that Christianity does. That's one thing I think um, that these observers are speaking about. And another thing, of course, is that you know when you're looking at um, an alim, what he does at some level, he's producing religion as he goes along, right? Where that's when you're doing what you're doing as a müftü, basically. You're saying this is what's correct for this religion. This is what's not correct for this religion. And you're doing this, I mean, on a daily basis. There are people whose job is to sort of make religion as they go, as it were. Uh, one thing that uh, this Johann Friedrich Bachstrom does is he writes a story about the Ottoman Empire. It's like a fiction. It's um, it's like a Robinson Crusoe-type book. I think they are called... Uh, I know they are called Robinson Aids, but it's uh, it's too cute a word, so I don't, uh, I don't use it very often. But, you know, that's what he does. Um, and he basically portrays the Ottoman Empire as the land of those who are fleeing from the Inquisition, right? That's what the theme of the book is. And he also actually portrays uh, Damat Ibrahim as sort of like a pietist of sorts. You know, Damat Ibrahim is willing to uh, accept the scripture. He's also willing to accept reason, but he's not willing to accept um, tradition, which is, you know, what the ulema sort of create, right? That's, so religious traditions is the business of the ulema. And it's also the business of, well, lots of other parts of society. But 
you know, he portrays Damat Ibrahim as somebody who's who's only willing to accept the scripture and reason, which actually fits quite well with what's happening on the religious front at this point. Uh, we know that you know the Mujaddidi movements are coming in, and uh, unfortunately, we don't know what the Ottomans did with this Mujaddidi movement. But I wouldn't be surprised if you know this sort of environment of negotiation, negotiating the meaning and the interpretation of religion, would be a lively debate at that point. So, uh, you know, I guess that's one thing, one more thing that I want to add, and um, sort of this, of course, links the entire you know st- the stuff that I have been talking about with the. The older Islamic Enlightenment debates um, between Bernd Ratke and Reinhard Schulze. This is a good way to kind of speak about just some of the older literature out there. You know, on one hand, we have for this period, we have this notion of an Islamic Enlightenment uh, by Schulze, and then we also have uh, even earlier this notion of Alale Devri by Ahmed Rafiq. Uh, the Alale Devri being the Tulip period, being kind of a moment when the Ottomans finally kind of open up to the West, uh, start importing ideas uh, from Europe, um, kind of turn themselves over to pleasure rather than war-making and so forth. I mean, how does how does your research kind of fit into these two different kind of bodies of previous scholarship? Like, how do you see, do you agree with them, disagree with them? Well, I don't really know, you know, um, what to do with the name the Tulip era. Um, I'm much more comfortable by, you know, with, calling this some kind of, you know, Ottoman Enlightenment, uh, that would be, I think, a more sort of appropriate designation. Um, as for, like, hedonism and stuff, I think they are very... I mean, this is, of course, you know, the invention of Ahmed Refik, more or less. You know, this is... The lore has been created by Ahmed Refik. Um, I mean, Ahmed Refik is as fun as he is to read. This, I think he's pretty much, you know, abandoned now. But that's not to say, of course, that this era was actually... Uh, different. I would say there was a rupture in this era even. Um, and as for, you know, how that works, I mean, I'm not sure about the mechanics because, you know, I'm a humble historian of science and I haven't uh, got much ar- archival evidence on this point. But if I were to sort of freely speak my opinion, um, it seems to me that, uh, I mean, one thing that's happening is uh, the constitution of the Ottoman elite is changing. Uh you you have a much more sort of cosmopolitan elite by this point because uh because of trade more or less right and trade and diplomacy of course they are sort of twin sisters in this era right sort of this trade diplomacy that is the new sort of center of power and that's one thing that's happening right so it's uh, it's moving from men of the sword to men of the pen right that's a trans- transition that's happening at this point um, another thing that's happening is um, sort of Ahmed's, I would say, political strategies, because as far as I know, you know, in the Ottoman Empire, you don't usually hang out with like all the pashas unless you have some business, right? Unless it's a divan meeting or something. Whereas Ahmed the Third prefers to lead such a lifestyle. He prefers to, you know, he builds the sadabad and he says, "Well, why don't my sort of grandees, you know, come spend time with me here?" And of course, that creates a certain type of sort of environment of sociability. Another thing that happens, of course, you know, is sociability in the city at large, which uh, which we sort of hear through sort of negative reports, right? Sort of um, reactionaries usually sort of complain about how um, mixed the society has become. So these are so, sort of some of the things that are happening. And I think the only thing that's uh, tulipy about this era is that you know there was sort of quite a market, a speculative market for tulips. But what about Islamic enlightenment? Do you agree with that term? Do you, but uh, why? Why? What's the difference in an Ottoman enlightenment and an Islamic enlightenment? Well, it's different in this sense. I think what came out, um, well, you know, the Islamic, the first, the initial Islamic environment enlightenment narrative um, is about. Um, Neo-Sufism, that's basically what it is. It's about a new type of Sufism that emerges in this era. To tell you the truth, uh, I don't really know about the, sort of the Sufism aspect, but I would say many of the themes that are discussed in the Islamic Enlightenment literature are here as well. And that's sort of this, um, I would say the, the, core, the core of this, um, sort of the core of the connection is the compatibility of faith and reason. Right, that's I would say the main thing. Uh, the greater emphasis on reason, 
doesn't mean you have to give up your faith, but greater emphasis on reason does mean that you have to modify your religious practices and your doctrines. And that's the sense that I get from you know what I see in the Ottoman Empire, and I think it's um, very compatible with uh, what has been discussed as part of the Islamic Enlightenment. Uh, I don't know if you would read this in the Sufi literature as such, Unless, of course, you know you count medical literature as Sufi literature, in which case you definitely do have a case where uh, you have sort of radical uh, rationalist thinkers who are sort of also quite faithful. Well, thank you, Haroon, for coming on and giving us such a great um, kind of picture of all the different connections between 18th century Europe and in Istanbul. Uh, I think we have kind of a much better understanding of kind of all the different people and ideas that were coming back and forth uh, across the Mediterranean. For those of you that are interested in reading more, um, Haroon will provide a bibliography on, on the website where you can uh, follow up on some of the things he has been saying, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Thank you for coming on, Haroon. Thank you, Nir. It's, it's been my pleasure. And tune in next week for another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Thank you.